Welcome to today's episode of the Plain Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Wes. Well, welcome to this week's episode of the Plain Truth Podcast. I'm honored to have a guest who is the current president of Missionary Aviation Fellowship, uh, Dave Holston. And I first met Dave, we were students together at Moody Aviation back in the late 90s. And Dave, it's a pleasure having you on with us today. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Wesley. Appreciate the invitation. Yeah, I've been I've been looking forward to this. As you mentioned, I know we've had some a uh, little bit of challenges getting this all lined up together. But, you know, as we get into this, kind of the first question I always ask all the guests is kind of how did you get into aviation? Kind of what's your aviation story? Yeah, probably like a number of your listeners, uh, as a as a little kid, I was enamored by all things aviation. I grew up on a farm in northeastern Colorado. We had a neighbor who had a 182 who he would take off periodically. I'd run outside and watch him take off of his dirt airstrip he had on his property. Uh, if crop dusters were flying around the area, I was fascinated by that. And I don't even really know where that interest began, but it's kind of one of those things, as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a pilot. And it never really faded away. As I um, got older and and got into high school, I was actually looking to pursue uh, perhaps a career in the military. Mm. I was in an ROTC program in my high school. Uh, We had moved to Georgia at that point and was kind of on that track. At the same time, I was uh, involved in my church kind of at increasing levels, and there was sort of this intersection of interest that occurred between aviation and a desire to do something with my life that would also honor um, God and to be a part of something that was you know, bigger than myself, I guess. And we'd had a family friend who had served with uh, a a mission aviation organization in Latin America. And I was aware that there was this ability to be involved in ministry and in aviation at the same time uh, through him. And uh, I kind of circled back to this this, uh, awareness during my senior year of high school and thought, okay, I... I really want to pursue aviation, but I think rather than going down the military route, and there's nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. at all, but um, I just had this desire to explore the mission aviation side of things. And that led me to Moody Bible Institute and their program, uh, Moody Aviation, which was purpose built and over 75 years ago to train men and women to do that sort of ministry. And uh, yeah, I guess the rest is history. You know, got there to. I went through their program in Chicago uh, the first couple of years, which was <clears throat> missions and Bible theology sort of classes, all non-technical stuff, and then transferred down to northeastern Tennessee, uh, which is where we would have crossed paths mm-hmm. and went through the next three years of their aviation program, getting my airframe and power plant license to be a mechanic, and then working progressively through private uh, instrument, commercial ratings, became a flight instructor, and actually worked at the school for two more years as a flight instructor after graduating. And uh, in 2000, we 
uh, made the decision to join Mission Aviation Fellowship. And that's the organization I've been a part of for the last 22 years. Wow. Amazing how time flies, doesn't it? Where, yeah, all, have, it where all have you served with, with MAF? Yeah, so it was interesting. When we first joined MAF, we had this desire to serve in South America. And that was really more out of a, because of the people that we had known and had a lot of interaction with at that point in our lives, a number of them had served in that context. And so that was kind of the primary reason. We're just like, hey, we, we love those people, we kind of like to be like them. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe that's the part of world, the, the world we can serve in. MAF asked us to go to Indonesia. And as you know, this is, think back to early 2000s and uh, internet's kind of coming on the scene. Um, there was like minimal information out there about Indonesia mm. and uh, we had to kind of get our heads wrapped around that, learn as much as we could about the country. And um, in 2001, we went over to begin our language training and uh, that's really where we did all of you know all of my years overseas as an MAF pilot and mechanic occurred there in Indonesia so we were there for the next 17 years wow uh, until we came back to work at our headquarters in 2018 okay what was the predominant uh, need if you will in Indonesia what was the predominant role of the airplane yeah, so MAF has been serving in that part of the world for, you know, close to 70 years. Hmm. Um, there are a lot of geographically remote parts of the country that still exist. Indonesia is a, uh, you know, an island nation. 17,000 plus islands make up that country. It spans over 3,000 miles east to west. Wow. Uh, we were located, uh, we, we did our service for the first 10 years in the Indonesian province of Kalimantan, that's the island of Borneo, kind of in the central part of the country. Borneo is a very large island, it's the third largest one in the world, and uh, vast expanses of jungle. Uh, not uh, the, the population was relatively uh, minimal in that part of the country compared to other parts of the country. And a big reason was just, it was so hard for people to move about on the, on the surface. So just thick impenetrable jungle. Uh, I could fly for, I could take off out of our base and fly for an hour, hour and a half in a 206 one way. And, uh, it was just like broccoli underneath me, right? <laughs> just very wow. thick jungle a few logging roads here and there, but those would um, oftentimes be impassable after a period of rain. And that's really what the airplane was used for, was to get into these airstrips that were about an hour to an hour and a half inland from the city where we lived. And um, there were a number of airstrips that had been built uh, by the villages that um, were located near them. Oftentimes those airstrips went right down through the middle of the village. You'd have houses on either side of it. And we used the plane to carry anything that they really could not grow or hunt uh, in the jungle. Uh, they could, you know, they were able to cultivate rice. They could have some small gardens. They could cut down trees for some, you know, for some lumber, 
but um, anything else, clothes, medicine, education supplies, metal roofing, glass for your windows, um, any sort of unique animals that you needed to get in, mm. uh, motorcycles, um, sandals, noodles, whatever. Uh, <laughs> all of those things that you couldn't get uh, kind of from the jungle that people you know, either needed to have or, or wanted to have, the airplane was really the best way to get it in. More efficient, really, to get it in than any other way because the roads were so bad. It would take so many days to travel. Did a lot of medevac flights to pick people up and bring them out to the hospital uh, where they could get better care. Did a lot of support for the uh, national church that was there. And um, whether it was conference flying or moving a pastor from one village to another, um, taking kids to go to school. Oftentimes kids would fly out and attend school in another town that had maybe a high school where there wasn't one that existed in their village. So we did a lot of flying kids around uh, to get to their schools and uh, government workers. Uh, the list goes on and on. Sure. Lots of variety. Pretty much anything we could get into the airplane. Sure. And were, I, I assume, in a lot of these villages, were there missionaries that you were predominantly supporting or was it disallocated yeah, towards I, specific villages? Actually, where those first 10 years of serving on in that province of Kalimantan, I could count on one hand the number of times I had a Western missionary on the airplane. Oh, wow. So in that, in that part of the world, there had been a lot of attention given to it by, um, you know, Western mission organizations kind of right in the post-World War II era. Okay. And uh, there was a, a focus in that part of the, the world during that time. There were a lot of churches that were established. And then a lot of mission organizations decided to send their people to other parts of the world or to pull them out. And so it was uh, what we would say... Uh, you know, an indigenous church or national church that was in existence there. Um, and we were really the only Westerners that lived in that part of the, the country. Um, and certainly the only missionaries that were there were, were the MAF folks. And, uh, you know, that was something I had to kind of come to terms with early on. I think I had trained to become a missionary pilot and the expectation that I had was that I would have missionaries that I'm flying around on the airplane. And that just wasn't the case there. Um, and that was a bit disappointing for me at the beginning. Again, mm. there was sort of this, um, you know, this idealistic uh, sort of thought of what I was going to be doing. This is, this is a very common experience for uh, missionaries involved in any number of fields, uh, fields of work where you have an expectation that doesn't match up with reality, mm -hmm. and you kind of have to wrestle with that. And uh, and over time, thankfully, God was very gracious and brought me from a place of of sort of disappointment of who wasn't on the airplane to shift my attention more to who was I going to be uh, on that airplane, and to see things more through the eyes of the people that we were serving who were incredibly faithful, resilient, generous, um, hospitable folks that we were getting to serve. And I really came to just 
love the people that we were serving and see great value in that. But it took it, it took a while. Um, that was my first 10 years overseas. We then moved to another part of the country uh, on the island of New Guinea uh, in, in the province of Papua. And even though it was the same country, missiologically, they were in a different place. There was a lot of Western mission organizations that were serving there. There still are. Hmm. And there were days that I flew where all of my passengers were, were Western missionaries on the airplane. So I, I, I had the opportunity to really see different facets of what our ministry can be like. What was the predominant aircraft type? Now you mentioned in, you began flying in the Cessna 206. What aircraft did you all have in, on the base there? Yeah, when I started, we had uh, like five 206s that we were flying. Uh, we were starting to phase out uh, the 185. Uh, MAF had used 185s for, you know, around the world for a number of years. But um, as the 206 became kind of more prominent and was what Cessna chose to manufacture throughout the 80s, um, that became a little bit more of the aircraft that we started to use. And it had it was easier to load it for cargo. Um, there were fewer accidents uh, with the airplane, particularly for takeoff and landing as a tricycle mm -hmm. um, you know, gear plane rather than conventional gear. So over time, it became really the, the aircraft of choice. So yeah, I think my first oh, seven or eight years as a pilot with MAF, that's all I flew was the 206 and uh you know had thousands of hours flying that thing sure. uh, throughout throughout that part of the world and it was a great aircraft um it was well suited for the sort of airstrips that we went into a lot of those airstrips were oh 11 1200 feet long um they were uh oftentimes wet um and slippery and it was Pretty, you know, we pretty well maximized the capabilities of that airplane in that environment. In the mid, you know, probably 2005, 2006 timeframe, we started to see increasingly difficult uh, supply issues with Avgas, hmm. and that started to impact us. When I arrived, that Avgas was refined in the country of Indonesia by the state-run oil company. They eventually decided to stop refining it and they had to import it from other parts of the world. And that just started to make everything more difficult, more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, we could experience time, you know, delays of weeks when it came to uh, getting our Avgas supplies. We'd have to ration it, really, really decrease the amount of flying that we could do until we got a new shipment in. And um, so we could see the the handwriting on the wall that sure. we had to an aircraft that was not dependent on Avgas, and that was not unique just to us in Indonesia. The the leaders of MAF at that time could see that as well, and so there were uh, discussions that were ha had begun with what uh, you know the the individuals who had eventually uh, formed the Quest Aircraft Company, which produced the Kodiak. Uh, MAF had been flying the Cessna Caravan for a number of years, and um, so in 2008 we got a Cessna Caravan, a Grand Caravan that we brought in. It, uh, it for a number of the places we flew, it was a great aircraft. It wasn't as well suited for 
that area that I was flying in Kalimantan because we had shorter airstrips and there were there were a number of them that we didn't feel real comfortable taking the air the caravan into because it was just a bit too marginal for sure. it. Sure. Um, doesn't do great with really slippery airstrips. Um, but there were other places that it functioned well in, and, and it was a great airplane in those areas because all of a sudden we could do, you know, one pilot could do the work of three airplanes almost, three 206s with the caravan, and uh, got there faster, uh, more comfortable, more people, more cargo. It was a great, great tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we love the caravan, and in some parts of the MAF world, that's, that's what we've got. Um, in 2009, we were able to get the Kodiak. That was better suited for the flying in Kalimantan. It was a bit better suited for the short takeoff and landing stuff. So, um, yeah, my last uh, 10 years or so overseas, I was pretty much just flying either the Caravan or the Kodiak, and uh, that became the kind of the airplane of choice for us. And now we have an all-turbine fleet in Indonesia. That's all we have are Caravans and Kodiaks. We had Phased, phased out the 206s. Okay. In the MAF world, do you still have piston-powered airplanes? We do. Okay. Yeah, we have. We, we still are flying some 206s uh, in uh, some of our countries in Africa, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Mozambique, Lesotho. We have uh, some piston aircraft in uh, Haiti. Um, so yeah, there's they're still out there. They're places out there. where we can get fuel. Uh, there's, you know, there's some advantages from an operational cost perspective, and um, it, uh, yeah, it's still a good aircraft for the mission aviation world in places where we can get the fuel. Sure, sure. What's some of the biggest challenges that MAF faces, you know, operating globally as a missionary aviation organization? Well, I would say, uh, I mean, there's. <laughs> We That's could, probably we a loaded question. Hours. That's probably a huge question. Yeah, I'm sorry. We could, probably, we could probably speak for hours about the challenges. I mean, I think at a at a macro level, uh, one of the unique challenges that's facing uh, our sector of aviation would be the increasing regulatory complexity. I think when a lot of when when mission organizations started to use airplanes. Uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago in their ministries, a lot of the places they were serving, the the countries they were flying in, there was little to no uh, regulatory body to um, regulate aviation. And so, as you well know, aviation is a highly regulated industry, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes for good reason. It's why it's a very safe, reliable form of transportation. Um, and we were, you know, we as an organization were largely self-regulated. We had our own, um, you know, operating procedures and manuals, and we were serious about following those things. And and uh, so safety has long been an important thing for us uh, for for a number of reasons. But I would say over the na- the last uh, 15 to 20 years, in particular. We've seen many of the countries we operate in have evolved in their regulatory sophistication. And so they are now uh, bringing a similar mindset to uh, aviation within their countries uh, that you would find is already well established in the 
in you know the developed world. And that's tricky uh, because we are kind of designed from the beginning to be single pilot, smaller aircraft, flying into uh, unimproved airstrips. Um, and all of a sudden you have a regulator in one of the countries that we're flying in who is looking at things through the lens of you know, airline level commercial aviation sort of perspective, mm. and they struggle to put our sort of operations into that box. Sure. And um, they're trying to become ICAO compliant. ICAO doesn't really have a box for our sort of aviation either. Uh, it's very much biased towards the larger transport category airplanes. They're talking about aerodromes and slot times and things mm -hmm. like that. Sure. And, that just doesn't overlay well uh, in a lot of the places that we fly. So almost every single location we're operating, we're you know in there interacting with the regulator, trying to help them understand why um, you know the flying we do is it, it tends to be much more of a Part 91 or small scale Part 135 sort of operation. But they're looking at it really from a 121 perspective mm -hmm. and. Uh, so that's that's an interesting challenge for us, and um, we've had to really force ourselves to grow in our sort of operational sophistication so that we can speak the language that they speak, that we can be seen as somebody who really is genuinely invested in doing, uh, you know, this aviation thing with a high level of excellence. We don't want to be seen as being antagonistic to any of that. Mm -hmm. And so our, our flying now will look a lot more like 135 sort of flying than what it used to. Uh, we have, uh, you know, folks like directors of quality and directors of safety. Um, and uh, those are things that we, we didn't really have 15, 20 years ago. And... Uh, so that's a that's a big one. That's probably one of the biggest ones. Um, ongoing challenges. I mean, we, depending on where we we serve, there can be significant security challenges. Sure. Uh, based upon um, localized uh, war, or you know, you could have a, a radicalized um, you know terrorist group, for instance, that's causing issues. Um, there's the ongoing challenge of just finding individuals who are willing to go to difficult parts of the world and do a really you know technically demanding sort of work it's not for everybody uh, i think it's really rewarding for those who pursue it but um, you know as, as you know there's very aggressive hiring taking place in the airline industry uh, and it's you know, you're a person who goes and does the work of MAF or with another mission organization in some of the places we serve around the world are sort of having to um, turn their back on uh, career opportunities in the airlines that can be appealing for a number of reasons. And um, so it's a little bit harder to find folks who are willing to go this sort of work, are willing to go, to, you know, to different parts of the world and do that sort of work. So. Yeah, that's just those. That's my short list of big challenges. When looking back over your your career as as a missionary and bush pilot, um, are there? This is a question I like to ask a lot of the the missionary guys. You know, 
have there been any you know biblical principles or life principles that have really stood out to you or perhaps that you've learned from being a, a missionary pilot yeah i think there there's yes there's a number of them actually um i like to remind people that aviation is if, if we're honest it takes the collective work of many many people for an airplane to go out and fly hmm. um you know i mean if you're a private uh individual aircraft owner yeah not as many you know you're maybe maybe a mechanic and a few people you're working with but even there you've got somebody who's helping you fuel up your airplane you know inspecting it you may be working with insurance people and a flight instructor and all of that um, but when you get into the the commercial you know aviation industry there are many many people that are involved in getting an airplane into the air that's very much the case with MAF. We have thousands of donors who contribute to our organization. I'm sitting here in our headquarters in Idaho, where we have about 150 employees in the building. Wow. Doing any, any number of different things uh, that are enabling us to do our work around the world. And so built into our name of Mission Aviation Fellowship is this this idea that it is a fellowship, that we are a body of people working together. That's a biblical principle mm -hmm. that the, you know, we, we read in God's word about the body of Christ. We read about people being gifted with different things. We read about the necessity yeah. of, for the body to have the eye and the hand and the foot. And and I just see that over and over again in our organization that we could not do the work that we do without a lot of people collectively working together. And we mm. tend to put a lot of focus on sort of the last individual, which is the pilot or the mechanic, and certainly their work is important, but they could never do what they do without that support of a lot of other people behind them. Sure. So I think that that's an important um, principle that has been illustrated through our work. I also think that, you know, we, we want, in MAF, we want to do what we do in a gospel-centered manner. And, and really what we mean by that is, you know, we embrace the truth of the gospel, which is, you know, really that... Um, God desires to have a relationship with us that's made possible through the work of his son, Jesus, who gave his life for us to redeem our lives. He rose from the dead. And, and as we enter into a relationship with him through belief in that, um, we, are, we are shaped and formed to become more like him and, and really to be a part of, of bringing his kingdom uh, to this to this world and all of that is good news it's it's the gospel it is hope for this life and and then eternity and so we want that to be demonstrated through the work that we do in a gospel-centered way and I think that the work of mission aviation uh, while maybe in it, it, it demonstrates that maybe imperfectly but it demonstrates that and, and this is how the Bible teaches us in the book of Ephesians that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Mm -hmm. But then God 
through his grace and his mercy and his love, he came to us and he draws us to him. And he brings us something through the work of Christ that we could never provide for ourselves. And in the places that we serve around the world, we have the privilege of, in a unique way, we seek to serve people who the world has forgotten. They are isolated, they live in remote places, and um, they're forgotten. Hmm. And we get to go to them. We get to uh, use our talents and our gifts to go reach them and bring them something that they would not be able to provide for themselves. And that may be in the form of help, uh, supplies that we're bringing them, it may be taking them to get medical care or an education, bringing somebody who wants to minister to them in their location. That's a demonstration of grace. It's a demonstration of coming to them, initiating and coming to them and bringing them something that they would would not be able to provide for themselves because they're in this isolated place. And that's a picture of the gospel, of being able to um, really bring something to them that they would not be able to provide for themselves. And I love that. I think it's a incredible use of the airplane. Um, it's life-saving work that we get to be a part of. Um, and then I think the, the final sort of thing that I would say is a, you know, a biblical truth that's illustrated through aviation is just what I would call this extravagant grace. Um, you know, God has saved us at a great cost. I mean, Jesus giving his life for us was, was costly beyond measure. And there's people who kind of raise their eyebrows at mission aviation and think, wow, that's, that's kind of an expensive thing to do for, um, you know, this little tribe that lives up on the top of a mountain. Mm. Uh, and, and it is. Um, we spend millions of dollars each year flying into places and serving these little villages that have a couple of hundred people in them, uneducated. Um, in many ways, the world looks at them as very unsophisticated, unworthy of help, probably. Insignificant. And, yeah, insignificant. And wow. it's our privilege to go and serve them. And it's costly. And we do that because we serve a God who describes himself as a shepherd who leaves a group of sheep to go search for one lost sheep. And MAF lives in the world of the one lost sheep. We, we go and we get to be a part of seeking out uh, those who are lost and forgotten. And we think that demonstrates just this extravagant grace that God has shown us. Wow, I love that. What a perspective. It made me think as you were telling, as you were stating that, what is, what is the church in Indonesia, what does it look like? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I would say it really, it varies, uh, just like you'd find here in the U.S. In some places, it's very mature in um, its size, uh, even in the buildings that are used, uh, its missional thinking. I mean, there's churches you can find in parts of the country that are mobilizing Indonesians to go to other parts of the world to be missionaries. Um, that you can go into the, the church and there's a pastor who's been trained in a seminary, who's 
giving a message and they're they're illustrating it with PowerPoint slides and you know I mean it looks like a a the experience would feel like a church experience here in the U.S. There there are places like that. Um, they tend to be in in population centers and areas where there's education that's more prevalent. They're not so much in the places where we serve, um, which tend to have a much more primitive sort of um, expression of the church. Um, and in a number of the places we fly, there's a church building. There are people going to church, but they have a very um, insufficient understanding of God's word and the gospel. Okay. Uh, it's there is a belief system that's intertwined with other uh, beliefs sure. like animism. Uh, so we refer to that as a lot of syncretism going on. They're they're sort of mixing biblical, uh, a basic biblical understanding with uh, tribal superstitions, and it all kind of gets mixed around in the pot. And you have this uh, expression of the church that is really not aligned with with God's word. Okay, that's more prevalent in a lot of the places where we serve, where. There's just a little church that has been built oftentimes by the villagers themselves. And, um, you know, there's stories of a missionary coming to a village where there's a pastor like, oh, yeah, we have a church here. And they go in and people are holding their Bibles upside down because they're completely illiterate. Oh, wow. And they have actually no idea what the Bible says. And so there's stories of missionaries who settled in a place where there was already a church building in existence, actually learning the culture and the language, teaching a biblically faithful expression of the gospel, and seeing the entire church, pastor included, coming to faith through that. Oh, wow. And then, and then it's now uh, they understand actually what God's word is. That's happened many times in, say, the, the Papua context where we flew. So, it really depends um, just in terms of the sort of discipleship and training and understanding of God's word that key leaders of the church have. If they if they have a, a, a relatively in-depth understanding of that, then you see the church growing in greater maturity. If that's minimal, uh, then you can see uh, heresy, you know, which is just this false teaching and, and uh, false understanding of, of God's word begin to come in and uh, it's it's a building with people sitting in it kind of pretending to go to church but they don't really understand what God's word says, says at all so there's the whole spectrum of that that you can see uh, throughout the country um, on a on a big scale uh, there's you know the the country of Indonesia is probably less than 10% Christian. Okay. Uh, it's the largest Muslim country in the world. So Christians are my, a minority. You mm. don't see as many churches around there as you would see in the U.S. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of the state of it. Yeah. I, I was thinking that Indonesia has, has been stated as the largest Muslim country in the world. Is that correct? It is. Yeah, it's the most yeah. populous one. Yep. Yeah. And so... And, and the brand of Islam, I would say, or the flavor of it, however you want to describe it, sure. is is different from what you would experience in the Middle East, for instance. Okay. Um, there's a lot of 
um, you know, a lot of individuals who live there who um, have grown up in an Islamic home and um, are not as uh, perhaps as devout as you would find in other parts of the world. Um, Indonesians are just, my experience is friendliness is in their DNA. They're just very hospitable. You can have good conversations about faith, about your spiritual beliefs, and um, and be at ease doing that, depending, you know, depending on who you're with. But they're open and inquisitive about those sort of conversations. It's a good good place to, to serve. Yeah it's, a, yeah, it's a good place to start a conversation about the Lord, too, to have that openness and willingness and not just be completely shut down. Wow. What does... Um, you know, in today's in today's culture in the U.S., how is MAF doing with recruiting and like what are your all's current needs? Yeah, well, I think we it, it seems like we are perpetually in a state of needing more people than um, you know we have more needs than the people to fill them, mm-hmm. and I think that 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 tends to be pretty constant. And it goes back again to what I was mentioning about sort of our growth in um, the sophistication of our operations. The care and feeding of uh, aviation in today's world, it just requires more people than it did um, 15, 20 years ago. You have to have um, individuals who are focused again on, you know, quality metrics and, working on that and uh, having more training resources available and um, somebody like a maintenance controller who's doing the the paperwork and and uh, maintaining the software systems that allow us to track things like the you know the maintenance of our aircraft a lot of that stuff was just done on paper in the past by Mm -hmm. a few individuals and so we just find that uh, even if the amount of flying we're doing in a certain location is the same that it was years ago, it just requires more people to do it. So there is, um, you know, we need we need pilots and mechanics and uh, individuals who can fill different operational roles uh, at a number of our locations around the world. Uh, we have a, a team that of recruiters that are located different parts of the country that sometimes they go to trade fairs we'll have you know a significant booth set up at a place like Oshkosh or Sun and Fun um, they're going to different training schools around the country and interacting with pilots and mechanics um, of faith mm-hmm. uh, who are interested in doing that sort of work um, like I mentioned earlier you know we're seeing it become it's a challenging environment to recruit people in with signing mm-hmm. bonuses and you know being able to get secure an interview with an airline without you know hundreds of hours of multi-engine time. I mean, it's just that the landscape has changed. Yes, <laughs> compared, to, compared to what it was. Yeah, when I joined uh, MAF a number of years ago, and I remember you know the. The mission aviation world is unique in that somebody can serve with MAF and be very well prepared for um, a, a career in the airline industry. And they're much, you know, they're 
abilities are sought after. That was not really the case when I first joined MAF 20 plus years ago, where you had to have a lot of multi-engine time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm flying a 206. It's something I'm looking at and I'm like, well, this probably isn't making me that appealing to uh, an airline recruiter. Um, that's all changed now. And right. so it's just, it's easier for folks to, um, you know, if, if they decide they want to do something else, it's just, it's just easier for that to, to all happen now. Um, so that creates a, a challenging and, you know, recruiting environment. But I would say we still see a number of individuals who uh, go, you know what, this is kind of my dream to be able to do this sort of work. And, and, and hear me clearly, uh, you know, I've got good friends who are faithful Christ followers in the airline industry. And I really believe that can be a great environment to um, demonstrate what it, what it means to be a Christ follower. So I'm yeah. not like, I don't look at airlines and go, they're the enemy. Right, uh, right. It just, but it just does create a, a more challenging environment. Um, and I just think also the, I'll call it the spiritual preparedness or maturity okay. of folks who are coming into our organization um we just we live in a world right now that is chipping away at that stuff from all sorts of different angles hmm. the influence of uh you know entertainment options at your fingertips um the influence of social media the the rancor that surrounds the political world, all of those things can kind of take people's eyes off of the cultivation of their walk with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And um, there's just, so I, it's just a lot of things competing for our attention and our energy. And if we allow that to kind of creep in and consume our thoughts and our minds and, sh and to drive the attitude that we have, uh, all of a sudden, you know, going to a different part of the world and doing something difficult to make disciples for Jesus through aviation, uh, it, it can, you can kind of lose your focus in that. Mm -hmm. And so we just, we feel like, you know, it, it takes ongoing cultivation and discipline to kind of maintain this call to uh, follow Jesus and mm -hmm. do what he's called us to do. You know, that made me think back when, when I was at Moody and I'm sure you heard this too. And I, I was trying to remember who said it. I don't know if it was Dan Gleason or Ed Robinson, but, but one of the instructors, it seemed like at the beginning of each year, they would, they would kind of give this, this little, this little speech, but basically it was something along the line of, you know, if you're not, if you're not seeking and ministering and and serving to reach the lost here in your local community or your hometown and if you're not engaged in the gospel and following Christ wholeheartedly then what makes you think you're going to do it in whatever overseas location you you end up in and that was very challenging yep. to me that I, mm -hmm. I really struck me as like wow that that is absolutely right because the opportunities for ministry 
are off. I mean, can can be harder at, at home. <laughs> it can be harder in your yep. hometown, you know. But yep. that was always a, a a very challenging statement. I just remember it to this day. And I think that ties in very well with what you were just saying. Yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah, there's nothing magic that happens to you when you get off the airplane in another part of the world and say, okay, this is where I'm going to live life and do ministry. I mean, you're still the same person. Right. And your, um, you know, the way you live your life is, yeah, there's going to be cultural changes you have to become aware of and the logistical elements of where you buy your stuff and how you get around is all going to be different. But that stuff that's kind of deep down in your heart in terms of what you, how you think and believe spiritually, um, you take that with you. And so, yes, the time to cultivate that is now Mm -hmm. and to, to grow in that. Yeah. Where is MAF uh, most active in in the world today? Well, the largest bases um, or or areas of concentration. Yeah. So Indonesia would be our largest area of operations just from a volume uh, perspective, the number of staff we have, you know, we have, I think, close to 10 or 12 aircraft that are flying there. Again, all a mix of caravans and Kodiaks. many, you know, dozens and dozens of airstrips, lots of different users who are flying on us, um, more work than, you know, more need than uh, kind of the capacity to meet it. Uh, so that would be, you know, you would see that in the Indonesia context, but at the same time, we, um, you know, we're flying in the Democratic Republic of Congo in, uh, you know, in Africa. We have a base both on the west side of the country in the city of Kinshasa, and then on the far eastern side over near Uganda. Okay. Um, and that uh, is another vast country, lots of needs, more, you know, more requests, particularly in the east side, than we're able to uh, meet. Mm-hmm. And um, lots of insecurity because of conflict between tribal groups and uh, some uh, radicalized Islamic groups, conflict with the military, all of that is sort of centered in the area where we're flying. And there's a you know, significant demand for uh, our aircraft to provide an air bridge to other parts of the country so that people aren't forced to travel on the surface. Um, right. Even as, as nearby as Haiti. I mean, we've, we have a team in Haiti that's flying. And, uh, you know, if you've kept up with the news in recent months, I mean, Haiti is one of our most challenging locations right now from a um, just general security, unrest, um, a lot of violence and protest and kidnappings and all that that can go on there. Yeah, That is greatly, uh, it's created a lot of challenge for people to move about on the surface, whether they're Haitians or some, you know, ministry that's doing work there. So, uh, yeah, you know, lots of requests for us to fly there. Well, you know, when I was with Missionary Flights, uh, you know, probably one of our biggest serving organizations that we worked with was MAF. Um, mm-hmm. You know, keeping keeping your guys going and flying aircraft parts and engines and <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, I was always very impressed by the operation. Of course, getting to know many of of your staff down there as well over the years was was always was always a blessing. Um, really good yeah. people. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's it's been a neat relationship that we've enjoyed with MFI throughout the years there. Yeah, but very yeah, very tough place, very very tough place, and it just it just seemed like Haiti never got a break. It was always something, you know, mm-hmm. whether it was the earthquake in 2010 and then you know hurricanes and then like you said the political unrest that just continues to 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 cycle. It just was always very heartbreaking. It's like they just yeah. never got a break. <laughs> You're exactly right. And and that's true of a number of places mm-hmm. where we we operate. I mean the reality is that um you know the the broken difficult things that exist in different countries around the world it is oftentimes why there's a need for us to be there. Hmm. Um, you know, governments that where there's a lot of corruption, a lot of instability, war, all of those things break down the ability to do things like build roads um, and develop infrastructure and have, um, you know, easy ways to get around on the ground. We're we're quick to complain about the situation in America for different reasons, but there's just no comparison. You right. Just, right. On the interstate and you drive at 80 miles per hour and go all over this country. Right. And we enjoy a stability to our to life in this country that many countries couldn't even dream about. And so, those are the places we tend to operate. And so, most of our locations have um, they're just difficult places to be. And mm-hmm. and that's oftentimes why there's a need for us to be there. Speaking of the log- logistics, in in places like Indonesia, and just just to maintain aircraft and keep them going, that has to be extremely difficult and, and expensive. I'm assuming you're just constantly shipping aircraft parts out of the U.S., or are you able to get? quite a bit of things, quite a bit of supplies locally. Yeah, well, rarely will we find a parts supplier in country where we serve. We'll usually identify maybe a regional supplier. So for instance, in Indonesia, we could sometimes get uh, parts out of a regional um, place like Singapore. And we could interact with them and then they would forward freight from there. Um, But a lot of our stuff is we'll do global shipments from we have a purchasing shipping department here in Mm -hmm. Idaho. They're purchasing parts, um, packaging them, getting things, you know, invoices ready for importation into a different country, all of which are a little bit different from each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes there's places where we serve where there may be an embargo and we have to think, okay, how can we get it, get parts in there without um, violating an embargo or, or something like that that's sure. going on? So our folks have to have their eyes on all of that. Um, delays are common. Um, you can get a, you know, maybe you get a part shipped to a place like Indonesia, but then it sits in a warehouse for weeks waiting to clear customs or something. So, right. Um, and, and so you're looking down the road and you're going, okay, we have to change this engine or we need to get this part. And, you know, we may be ordering things four or five, six months before um, we need it uh, in order to have it, you know, on hand when it actually comes time to do the maintenance. I was in Mozambique this last week visiting our uh, our team that's there. And 
they were talking about, you know, they're aware of supply chain issues uh, for aircraft engines. That's, you know, mm. one sector that's been challenging to get uh, new engines. So we have a, a 206 that we fly there and they're looking at, you know, needing to get a, a Continental 520 engine uh, over there to replace it, but it's not due for like a year and a half from now. And they're thinking right now, do we need to be ordering that engine right now uh, as they contemplate the delays? So yeah, parts of uh, supply shipping um, is a significant challenge for us. And it's not unusual um, if we have an, uh, you know, an aircraft on the ground, an, an AOG situation where mm -hmm. There's a part that's pretty critical to get it back in the air. Not unusual for us to find it's more cost effective to buy a uh, airline ticket and have a passenger take a trip just to carry that part over oh, sure. and mm -hmm. get it into the hands of somebody. So that we have, that happens a number of times every year for us where we have an AOG situation and we'll, we do what we call a hand carry where somebody just puts the part in their luggage and off they go off to they deliver go. it. <laughs> yep. It's very creative problem solving. Yeah, that's right. There has to be a lot of that. <laughs> a lot of that. Um, well, looking back over your career, what advice would you give a younger you? Oh, man. Um, you know, I think, I, you know, those of us in the aviation industry, uh, rightly so. We put a lot of focus on the technical. We put a lot of focus on things like the schedule, doing things right. That's important. That's, that's stuff that you need to continue to do if you're gonna have a safe and reliable operation. But our, our pursuit of all of that at times can help us, can, can you know, cause us to bypass the importance of relationships. And, um, and, and so we can, you know, we can look at, okay, I've got the schedule I need to fly and you're going after that. You're kind of a hard charging type A sort of person. We have a lot of those people in MAF. I would consider myself that, Yes. <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of different times. Mm -hmm. And those sort of individuals can, without meaning to, can, kind of be blind to the relational dynamics that are surrounding them. They don't see the person who's kind of uh, tears in their eyes hurting on the sidelines. And um, we can fail to engage with people and we should have taken five minutes to do that. And right. I think over time, I found that uh, I became increasingly aware of that but in the early years of my flying, I wasn't seeing it. And mm. I think that, um, you know, if we're, if we're going to help people know who Jesus is and become more like him, it requires interaction. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean hours and hours of it necessarily, but they do need to, you know, they need to experience some care and some concern and some love being shown to them. And so I think that I would probably remind myself of that, that don't, don't fail to see the people around you that you're using this airplane to serve. Um, you know, always having a priority also and just the, the cultivation of 
um, my my spiritual life and you know reading God's word and pursuing spiritual disciplines and mm. and um, time in prayer and good fellowship like that's just an investment that you'll never regret and right. so I feel like I'm always have this desire to do more of that than I feel like I have the discipline to do and um, you know I think I just remind my younger self like prioritize that that's that's the truly important stuff in life Wow, that's great advice. Well, as we wrap up here, uh, how can we how can we pray for for you and for MAF? You have any anything that we could specifically yeah. lift up to the Lord? Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I think I think um, you know we do a type of flying that just by nature of what it is, it's higher risk, hmm. and so I on my mind, there's just always this this prayer that the Lord will protect our staff, either in the, um, you know, the actual aviation operations or just in the going and coming from the hangar and living life in some challenging communities and mm -hmm. uh, being at places where there may be an increased risk for uh, different challenges that could confront them. So I think just ongoing prayer for the protection of our MAF staff around the world Okay. Um, the, the provision of all that we need to do what we do. I mean, I'm amazed at how God provides for our ministry just day after day in so many different ways. The people who give generously, who pray for us, who um, help us to purchase aircraft and to build homes for our staff and to train uh, promising you know, a promising African or Haitian who we want to train to become a mechanic and they're investing in their training, those sort of things. I, I love that. And I'm so grateful how God provides for us. And that's just an ongoing need. Um, and then I just think, you know, I would, I've, I've told people that we've come through this season of just so much disruption from COVID to mm. Um, you know, we experienced a fatal accident a couple of years ago. It was really difficult. We had, mm. um, you know, staff who've been evacuated from really difficult parts of the world and uh, just a lot of instability. And, you know, that some of that just comes with the territory, what we do. But I oftentimes am praying, you know, Lord, would you just bring kind of a, a, a peace and stability to our organization to help us catch our breath. <laughs> and um, I feel like that's something that I've really been desiring in recent months and would be grateful for prayers along those lines. Okay. Well, we'll encourage our listeners to definitely lift those things up in prayer. Um, and I will too, for sure. Great. Appreciate Dave, that. Yeah, thank you so much for, for blessing us with uh, your time today. I know you're a super busy guy and and I just really thank you. It's it's been great to connect with you again and and hear a little of your story um, and just the incredible work that MAF is doing around the world. It's it's been a blessing to me, and I hope it'll be a blessing to our listeners as well. Hey, thanks, Wesley. I am grateful for the opportunity and hope it's uh, helps helps folks who are listening to it to just have a little bit clearer understanding of this unique world of of mission aviation yeah and in the description of the of the episode i'll i'll post um is it still maf.org if people want to yep. learn more 
about the organization. Okay. That's right. Yeah, I'll post that. So, well, Dave, thank you so much, and I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day, and thank you again for, for joining us today. You bet. Thank you. All right. Well, have a good day. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Plain Truth Podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to come back next week for more discussions and stories about God's Word and the amazing world of aviation. Until next time, set your course straight and stay on track. Thank you.